This is section 118 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 118, The Galaxy, October 1870, part 2. The Galaxy, October 1870, Memoranda, by Mark Twain. Curious Relic for Sale. For Sale for the benefit of the Fund for the Relief of the Widows and Orphans of Deceased Firemen, a curious ancient Bedouin pipe procured at the city of Endor in Palestine, and believed to have once belonged to the justly renowned Witch of Endor. Parties desiring to examine this singular relic with a view to purchasing can do so by calling upon Daniel S., 119 and 121 William Street, New York as per advertisement in the Herald. A curious old relic indeed, as I had a good personal right to know. In a single instant of time, a long-drawn panorama of sights and scenes in the Holy Land flashed through my memory. Town and grove, desert, camp, and caravan clattering after each other and disappearing, leaving me with a little of the surprised and dizzy feeling which I have experienced at sundry times, when a long express train has overtaken me at some quiet curve and gone whizzing car by car around the corner and out of sight. In that prolific instant I saw again all the country from the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth clear to Jerusalem, and thence over the hills of Judea and through the Vale of Sharon to Joppa, down by the ocean leaving out unimportant stretches of country and details of incident i saw and experienced the following described matters and things immediately three years fell away from my age and a vanished time was restored to me september eighteen sixty seven it was a flaming oriental day this one that had come up out of the past and brought along its actors its stage properties and scenic effects and our party had just ridden through the squalid hive of human vermin which still holds the ancient biblical name of Endor. I was bringing up the rear on my grave four-dollar steed, who was about beginning to compose himself for his usual noon nap. My! Only fifteen minutes before, how the black, mangy, nine-tenths naked, ten-tenths filthy, ignorant, bigoted, besotted, hungry, lazy, malignant, screeching, crowding, struggling, wailing, begging, cursing, hateful spawn of the original witch, had swarmed out of the caves and the rocks and the holes and crevices in the earth, and blocked our horses' way, besieged us, threw themselves in the animal's path, clung to their mane, saddle furniture, and tails, asking, beseeching, demanding, bookshish, bookshish, Bakshish! We had rained small copper Turkish coins among them, as fugitives fling coats and hats to pursuing wolves, and then had spurred our way through as they stopped to scramble for the largesse. I was fervently thankful when we had gotten well up on the desolate hillside and outstripped them, and left them jawing and gesticulating in the rear. What a tempest had seemingly gone roaring and crashing by me and left its dull thunders pulsing in my ears! I was in the rear, as I was saying. Our pack-mules and Arabs were far ahead, and Dan, Jack, Moult, Davis, Denny, Church, and Birch 
these names will do as well as any to represent the boys, were following close after them. As my horse nodded to rest, I heard a sort of panting behind me, and turned and saw that a tawny youth from the village had overtaken me, a true remnant and representative of his ancestress the witch, a galvanized scurvy wrought into the human shape, and garnished with ophthalmia and leprous scars, an airy creature with an invisible shirt-front that reached below the pit of his stomach, and no other clothing to speak of except a tobacco-pouch, an ammunition-pocket, and a venerable gun, which was long enough to club any game with that came within shooting distance, but far from efficient as an article of dress. I thought to myself, now this disease with a human heart in it is going to shoot me. I smiled in derision at the idea of a Bedouin daring to touch off his great-grandfather's rusty gun and getting his head blown off for his pains. But then it occurred to me, in simple schoolboy language, suppose he should take deliberate aim and haul off and fetch me with the butt-end of it. There was wisdom in that view of it, and I stopped to parley. I found he was only a friendly villain who wanted a trifle of bucksheesh, and after begging what he could get in that way, was perfectly willing to trade off everything he had for more. I believe he would have parted with his last shirt for bucksheesh, if he had had one. He was smoking the humbliest pipe I ever saw, a dingy, funnel-shaped red clay thing, streaked and grimed with oil and years of tobacco, and with all the different kinds of dirt there are, and thirty percent of them peculiar and indigenous to endor and perdition. And rank? I never smelt anything like it. It withered a cactus that stood lifting its prickly hands aloft beside the trail. It even woke up my horse. I said, I would take that. It cost me a franc, a Russian kopeck, a brass button, and a slate pencil. And my spendthrift lavishness so won upon the son of the desert that he passed over his pouch of most unspeakably villainous tobacco to me as a free gift. What a pipe it was, to be sure! It had a rude brass-wire cover to it, and a little coarse iron chain suspended from the bowl, with an iron splinter attached to loosen up the tobacco and pick your teeth with. The stem looked like the half of a slender walking-stick with the bark on. I felt that this pipe had belonged to the original Witch of Endor as soon as I saw it, and as soon as I smelt it I knew it. Moreover, I asked the Arab cub, in good English, if it was not so, and he answered in good Arabic that it was. I woke up my horse, and went my way, smoking. And presently I said to myself reflectively, if there is anything that could make a man deliberately assault a dying cripple, I reckon maybe an unexpected whiff from this pipe would do it. I smoked along, till I found I was beginning to lie, and project murder, and steal my own things out of one pocket and hide them in another. And then I put up my treasure, took off my spurs, and put them under my horse's tail, and shortly came tearing through our caravan like a hurricane. From that time forward, going to Jerusalem, the Dead Sea, and the Jordan, Bethany, Bethlehem, and everywhere, I loafed contentedly in the rear, and enjoyed my infamous pipe, and reveled in imaginary villainy. But at the end of two weeks we turned our faces toward the sea, and journeyed over the Judean hills, and through rocky defiles, and among the scenes that Samson knew in his youth, and by and by we touched level ground just at night, 
and trotted off cheerily over the plain of Sharon. It was perfectly jolly for three hours, and we whites crowded along together, close after the chief Arab muleteer, all the pack animals and the other Arabs were miles in the rear, and we laughed and chatted and argued hotly about Samson, and whether suicide was a sin or not, since Paul speaks of Samson distinctly as being saved and in heaven. But by and by the night air and the duskiness and the weariness of eight hours in the saddle began to tell, and conversation flagged and finally died out utterly. The squeak-squeaking of the saddles grew very distinct. Occasionally somebody sighed or started to hum a tune and gave it up. Now and then a horse sneezed. These things only emphasized the solemnity and the stillness. Everybody got so listless that for once I and my dreamer found ourselves in the lead. It was a glad, new sensation, and I longed to keep the place forevermore. Every little stir in the dingy cavalcade behind made me nervous. Davis and I were riding side by side, right after the Arab. About eleven o'clock it had become really chilly, and the dozing boys roused up and began to inquire how far it was to Ramlah yet, and to demand that the Arab hurry along faster. I gave it up then, and my heart sank within me, because, of course, they would come up to scold the Arab. I knew I had to take the rear again. In my sorrow I unconsciously took to my pipe my only comfort. As I touched the match to it, the whole company came lumbering up and crowding my horse's rump and flanks. A whiff of smoke drifted back over my shoulder, and— "'The suffering Moses! Phew! By George, who opened that graveyard? Boys, that Arab's been swallowing something dead!' Right away there was a gap behind us. Whiff after whiff sailed airily back, and each one widened the breach. Within fifteen seconds the barking and gasping and sneezing and coughing of the boys and their angry abuse of the Arab guide had dwindled to a murmur, and Davis and I were alone with the leader. Davis did not know what the matter was, and don't to this day. Occasionally he caught a faint film of the smoke and fell to scolding at the Arab and wondering how long he had been decaying in that way. Our boys kept on dropping back further and further, till at last they were only in hearing, not in sight. And every time they started gingerly forward to reconnoiter, or shoot the Arab, as they proposed to do, I let them get within good fair range of my relic. She would carry seventy yards with wonderful precision, and then wafted a whiff among them that sent them gasping and strangling to the rear again. I kept my gun well charged and ready, and twice within the hour I decoyed the boys right up to my horse's tail, and then with one malarious blast emptied the saddles, almost. I never heard an Arab abuse so in my life. He really owed his preservation to me, because for one entire hour I stood between him and certain death. The boys would have killed him if they could have got by me. By and by, when the company were far in the rear, I put away my pipe. I was getting fearfully dry and crisp about the gills, and rather blown with good diligent work, and spurred my animated trance up alongside the Arab, and stopped him and asked for water. He unslung his little gourd-shaped earthenware jug, and I put it under my mustache and took a long, glorious, satisfying draught. 
I was going to scour the mouth of the jug a little, but I saw that I had brought the whole train together once more by my delay, and that they were all anxious to drink too, and would have been long ago if the Arab had not pretended that he was out of water. So I hastened to pass the vessel to Davis. He took a mouthful and never said a word, but climbed off his horse and lay down calmly in the road. I felt sorry for Davis. It was too late now, though, and Dan was drinking. Dan got down, too, and hunted for a soft place. I thought I heard Dan say, "'That Arab's friends ought to keep him in alcohol, or else take him out and bury him somewhere.' All the boys took a drink and climbed down. It is not well to go into further particulars. Let us draw the curtain upon this act. Well, now, to think that after three changing years I should hear from that curious old relic again, and see Dan advertising it for sale for the benefit of a benevolent object. Dan is not treating that present right. I gave that pipe to him for a keepsake. However, he probably finds that it keeps away custom and interferes with business. It is the most convincing inanimate object in all this part of the world, perhaps. Dan and I were roommates in all that long Quaker City voyage, and whenever I desired to have a little season of privacy, I used to fire up on that pipe and persuade Dan to go out, and he seldom waited to change his clothes, either. In about a quarter, or from that to three-quarters of a minute, he would be propping up the smokestack on the upper deck and cursing. I wonder how the faithful old relic is going to sell. End of section 118